Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada this morning. Longtime listeners of our show know that each and every week I have the pleasure of interviewing a guest about the weekly parasha, the weekly section of the Torah, the five books of Moses that are read in synagogues throughout the world. This week, we're going to uh, acknowledge that um, the holiday of Passover is coming to the Jewish community in just a little uh, less than a week, and we're going to look at a different piece of uh, sacred literature. In fact, we're going to speak about whether it's sacred literature or not. For unlike the normal Shabbatot, where we read from the five books of Moses, during the festival of uh, Passover, not only do we we read selective portions from the Torah, but we read from what is known as the Song of Songs. It is customary to read the Song of Songs on the first night of Passover at the end of the Seder. Often, outside the land of Israel, where the Seder is repeated on the second night of Passover, the reading of this book is sometimes spread over the two nights, but it is more common for the whole book to be completed on the first night. In Ashkenazic communities, those communities from Western and Eastern Europe, the Song of Songs is read publicly on the intermediate Shabbat, Passover is a seven or eight day holiday and therefore always has a Shabbat that falls within its parameters. That Shabbat is called Shabbat Chol Hamoed, the Shabbat of the intermediate days. And it is read, the Song of Song is read before the reading of the Torah. In some communities, it is read from a scroll, handwritten on parchment. In those cases, when it's read from a scroll, two blessings are offered. Now, one might ask, why is the Song of Song read on Passover? And there are a number of uh, suggestions as to why this is. Um, There is a mention of Pharaoh in the book. There is also a symbolic representation of, of the four different exiles that are mentioned in the Torah and in the Passover Haggadah. And there's a mention of uh, Israel's redemption. In addition, the major piece of literature that is uh, known as the Zohar, that text which underwrites is foundational for Jewish mysticism, tells us in uh, some sort of mystical way that the Song of Song embodies the entire Torah, the story in exile, the redemption of Israel, as well as from not only Egypt, from other oppressors. So by reading it, we are enhancing the mitzvah of recounting the story of Exodus. There are many other reasons for that history has suggested uh, is the basis for our reading it. This morning, we want to speak about the Song of Songs. And with me is uh, a new guest to our show, Emeritus Rabbi Raymond Ray Van Leeuwen, 
who is a native of Southern California. We won't hold that against him as he now lives in Ottawa, having retired from nearly 35 years of teaching Hebrew Bible and Old Testament in the United States and found his retirement in Ottawa with his Canadian wife, who he met while doing a doctoral dissertation at the University of Toronto. He has written the Book of Proverbs um, for the New Interpreter's Commentary, and more widely has written on wisdom and creation in ancient Israel and the ancient Near East. He's proud to say that in spite of the weather, he likes Ottawa as a place for retirement, but misses the ocean. It's a real pleasure to have uh, Ray Van Leeuwen with me this morning to talk about the Song of Songs. So firstly, welcome and thank you for joining me this morning. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm simply delighted. We have such a good topic. And just one uh, brief note. I am only, only by your word a rabbi because I'm actually a goy who reads Hebrew. Well, we will accept anyone who finds uh, joy in the reading and learning of Hebrew. So thank you. Um, so let's begin. Why don't you tell our audience about a, a bit of the history of the Song of Songs? Okay. So uh, this is one of what uh, Jewish tradition calls the five megalodes. That is the five books that are usually associated with uh, various Jewish festivals. So that's the uh, Jewish part of its history. It's probably written in the second temple period after the return from exile. Um, and it is really a deep and mysterious book because it seems to celebrate erotic love. And there might be one mention of um, Adonai, the Lord, in it, but otherwise it's all about seemingly erotic love. Um, when you mention the return from exile, remind our listeners um, what time frame you are speaking of, and why would there be such a book, if you can hypothesize, written um, at that time of return? The exile took place to Babylon about 587, 586 BC, BCE, that is, before the Common Era, and um, then, according to God's promises, especially in the book of Isaiah, the Israelite people, that is now the tribe of Judah, basically, the Jews, returned to the promised land contrary to all expectations, but um, according to God's promises. And that is a time that uh, was full of joy. And somehow that joy includes the human universal of human love. But there's more going on. 
So help us understand that. I think that's a really wonderful beginning of an explanation that the return from exile, um, only 80 years after the exile, um, allows the Jews to establish um, a second temple, um, a very smaller second temple than we think of from the Herodian period, um, but nonetheless a second temple. And you've indicated that it must have been a very joyful time. Yes, indeed. Um, and perhaps I could uh, uh, describe the song a bit. Please do. So we get a sense of that. I'd say that, at least at first glance, that the song is an extended set of love songs or poems, mostly in dialogue form between Jewish lovers. And of these two lovers, it's the young woman who has pride of place, who, who basically is the instigator of the action and of the speaking. The poem is filled with uh, the language of desire, of seeking and finding, of seeking and not finding. Where did my loved one go? And then when we get to all the um, imagery for the human body and for erotic love, we find all kinds of beautiful, beautiful natural and cultural image for the body and for love. It's both dazzling but also chaste as the imagery, as it were, veils the erotic and keeps it from being just arousing. The imagery, I think, also forces us to realize that this poem is not just about sexual love. And I'll leave it. I can read you some poetry if you like, but that's how I'd well, sum it I sum up. I was just going to say, for some of our readers who this text may not be as well known to, um, why don't we offer some snippets of the text? Okay. I'm sure you might. You must have your own favorites. Well, <laughs> it's it's almost hard to choose because it's all so lovely. But here's one that, in a certain way, ties the song also to Passover because this little snippet is uh, a spring snippet. It's about the coming of spring. Here we are. This is in chapter one. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. And then she goes on to talk about being a rose of Sharon, the plain near the sea coast, and a lily of the valleys. 
So it's quite beautiful for those um, who might have a text that they could follow along. This is at the very end um, of uh, chapter one. But I would also call your attention to in chapter one, we have this mention of Pharaoh. I have likened you, my darling, to a mare in Pharaoh's chariots. Uh, Now, those are the same chariots that were destroyed in the crossing of the Red Sea. But nonetheless, um, as Dr. Van Leeuwen reminds us all, this is um, intended to be a celebration of new love by mentioning the spring and referring us to uh, Pharaoh and the new liberation of the Jewish people. There is a freshness, a... um, I guess it's uh, repetitive to say new, but a freshness about uh, this relationship that it's speaking about. And of course, the symbolism of spring is not uh, dissimilar uh, to the symbolism at Passover and the symbolism at Easter as well. Um, Do you have another passage that you think just uh, is uh, uh, emblematic of the beauty of this text? Well, uh, let me give you one from the beginning of chapter four that is beautiful, but at the same time will, to us moderns, seem quite strange. This is, I'll begin straight at the start of chapter four. It's, it's strange to us in the way that the body and the body parts are described. And um, I'll just read it. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. And not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like a tower of David built in rows of stone. And so on and so on. Your breasts, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. They graze among the lilies. It's certainly erotic language, very different than the language uh, you as a teacher of Old Testament would know. Um, When the Torah speaks of human sexuality, language is very terse. He knew. She was known. Right? One word. um, None of the matriarchs are described um, in such detail. Um, with regard to their femininity, um, at best we're told that they're um, a delight to look upon, but veiled. Um, any idea that you'd like to uh, hypothesize why we have such um, racy language for a biblical text? Well, you might say that... Uh the, the ancient uh, Israelites and Jews hadn't gone through the uh, Victorian era yet. 
And they're, in their own way, they're affirming of the body and of fertility and uh, bodily love uh, in the uh, bonds of marriage. It's very positive. Um, and I, I was joking about the Victorian era, of course. Oh, no, no, but um, do you think it's a um, reflection of their interaction with the Babylonians and the Persians? Um, that's, that's an interesting question because um, a number of scholars, uh, first of all, have tried to understand the song uh, in relationship to Egyptian love songs. Uh -huh. um, my uh, friend, Michael Fox, who's emeritus from U, Wisconsin, uh, has written a very fine book comparing the Song of Songs to um, uh, the Egyptian love songs. And on the other hand, you have uh, uh, scholars now who are talking about Sumerian love songs and so forth from Mesopotamia, which are very ancient. So it's partly, you might say, that this is, this is uh, something that was in the ancient Near Eastern culture. On the other hand, um, I think what the song does with all of this is somehow unique and special. How, why don't you expand upon that a bit? Because of all those other poems, um, none have been uh, canonized into a monotheistic sacred text the way this is. Uh, exactly. And, exactly. And Song of Songs not only um, resonates in the Jewish world liturgically, but as you uh, reminded our listeners, um, you are not of the of the Jewish covenant, and yet you've spent a good part of your life teaching um, covenantal material. So why is this so unique? I think that what's um, why it is canonized partly is because it takes the trouble in its imagery subtly to relate, um, as we've already suggested, to relate the song and human love to the history of Israel and to what I would call God's glorious creation. And um, in our North American broader culture, it easily makes human erotic love into a god or an idol, like Marilyn Monroe was uh, um, a sex goddess, we say. Just as the ancient world had goddesses like Ishtar, Aphrodite, and Venus. So it's not, it, it, it's about erotic love and bodily love, but it's about much more than that. For instance, there are hints of exclusivity and commitment. Set me as a chotam, as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. 
I am my beloved's. No, she she does. The the young woman doesn't say that. Actually, she reverses things and says, "My beloved is mine. The male belongs to her." Instead of the old patriarchal idea that women are just the possession of the man, and and this is really, uh, I think, quite profound, because um, you've you've got this uh, this this promise in the set me like a seal upon your heart, and that seal or signet ring signifies. Possession, exclusive belonging. So, like God is exclusively Israel's, and Israel is God's special people among all the nations and peoples and families of the earth. Um, so also, uh, this love is meant to be kind of an exclusive relation of dedication to one another that isn't just a passing fling or a passing uh, pleasure. So that's why in kind of a covenant, implicit covenant, the woman says, my beloved is mine and I am his. And, um, what, and, and by the way, this is repeated three times, uh, in a context of an oath. And, um, in one of the times in 11, uh, set chapter seven, verse 11, she says, uh, my beloved is mine and I am his. And his teshuka, his desire is for me. Now, what's so significant is that teshuka, desire, only occurs three times in the Hebrew Bible. In Genesis 3.16, where we read, um, in part of God's judgment on the sin of Adam, and Eve, he says to the woman, um, your teshuka, your desire will be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you, as in patriarchy. And what the song does seems to reverse the, uh, the curse of having desire for one who will be patriarchal and rule over you. Because she says, the man's desire is going to be for me. And the song is constantly talking in terms of a garden and a vineyard. And it's as if the expulsion from the Garden of Eden has been reversed in the Song of Songs. I hope that our listeners are able to um, integrate the, these wonderful insights. Um, traditionally, the book is seen at um, opposite ends of spectrum. 
On one hand, as uh, Dr. Van Leeuwen began, it's an erotic love poem. Good. In Jewish tradition, it's an allegory for the love between God and Israel and seen very theological. But you've indicated to us a much greater depth of all the imagery here. Um, We've moved from a simple patriarchal relationship, which is what the covenant is often expressed as, God being the male, Israel as the female. You've told us that in this poem, the female has some primacy. You've talked about the Garden of Eden and the expulsion being reversed. Um, And in fact, um, it's not such a punishment as it appears to be to leave the garden. Um, And that imagery of garden and vineyard, of course, um, finds itself in so many different aspects of the Torah literature. Um, We probably don't have time to really... um, go more more in depth about the transition from this joyous celebration of liberation, as you reminded us at the beginning, the Jews liberated from exile or those who chose to leave, uh, liberated from exile, um, expressing their covenantal relationship and language that's not found anywhere else in the Torah or any of the other books. Um, And then the rabbis, I suppose one could say discomfort with this book. Um, Yes, indeed. Yeah, during the first, second, and third century of the Common Era, when um, Israelite religion um, is destroyed by the Roman destruction of the Temple in 70, and rabbinic Judaism um, starts to um, offer its own uh, hegemony over all of this. I can imagine um, those old guys sitting around the table and uh, wherever they were, Yavna and elsewhere, being very uncomfortable uh, reading this erotic literature. Um, they get the feeling maybe we've got to put a fence around the Torah and a fence well, around sexuality. Well, yes. And even though they continued Um, to be rather comfortable discussing sexuality in Jewish legal terms, um, it's an interesting dichotomy. We think about the Talmud as a legal document, and of course it is. And we think about um, the rabbinic approach to Judaism as being one of obligation, as expressed through the 613 mitzvot. But here you've reminded us that at the very beginning, this covenant is much more relational um, and is able to create um, an unbridled joy um, about uh, Israel and its understanding of the deity. My guest this morning has been uh, Dr. Ray Van Leeuwen. Uh, Professor Emeritus of Old Testament and Wisdom Literature. Um, I want to thank him for helping us uh, have some different insights into uh, the Song of Song, Shir Hashirim, as it's known in Hebrew, the one of the five scrolls that's uh, assigned to reading on Passover. 
You can hear our recording um, on CHRI uh, 99.1 FM or as a podcast on chri.ca, or you can download it from iTunes or any other streaming service where you get your podcasting. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, thanking our guest again, and thank you for listening. Shalom and have a good day. Shalom. Shalom.